This program is brought to you by Emory University. Well, thank you very much. I want to thank the organizers for uh, inviting me and also thank Dick Passingham for not following through on the promise he's been taunting me with for several weeks that his talk would leave me in a state of apoplexy. It, it has not. Perhaps if I'd had some of that anesthetic, I would be. But um, I, I really have no fundamental disagreement uh, with anything that, that he said. I have a somewhat different perspective, as, as you'll see. Let me just make sure that I can operate Gizmo here. Ah, yes. The USB device here. Let's just see how that works. It may take a moment to detect it. There we go. Huh. All right, so evolution is change. Evolution makes things different. If species didn't differ, we wouldn't need a theory of evolution. Now, evolution is not only a process of, of change, it's, it's a process that generates di differences between species. We know that the processes of adaptation generate the differences between species. And, and the process of species separation, species speciation, as it's called, and the process of extinction eradicate the, eradicate the continuity between species. So every species has a set of characteristics that distinguish it from other species by virtue of the little part of its evolutionary history that's unique. And a lot of what evolutionary biologists do today is try to reconstruct the history of these lineage-specific changes. And so if your question is, what are the species-specific characteristics of human beings, of course, the first place you'd start is figuring out how to get the buttons to work. Ah, yes. You'd start by studying humans. This is my model human. This is uh, Edward Drinker Cope, the uh, famous and famously arrogant uh, American paleontologist who very thoughtfully donated his uh, mortal remains to science to serve as the type specimen of Homo sapiens. <laughs> um, and of course, if you want to understand humans, you have to study humans. But if you want to understand human specializations, it's not enough just to study humans. You have to study other animals as well. And if your interest is in human specializations, the animals that provide the most informative comparisons are our closest relatives, the chimpanzees. And, um, we know, uh, as has been discussed previously, that the common ancestor of, of ch chimpanzees and humans probably lived six to eight million years ago. The number keeps creeping back a little bit as new fossil finds come along. But we, we seem, the most recent fossils seem to be very close to the common ancestor. Now, so if you, um, I mean, if you just were to look at humans, humans are a package of characteristics, some of which we have because of our recent evolutionary history, but some of which we inherited from our deep ancestry. And, and so the way to separate those things apart is to do comparative studies like these. Studies like these allow us to identify characteristics that humans have that are human-specific, that chimps have that, ch that are chimp-specific. And of course, then there is a package of characteristics that we share in common with the African apes because of our period of common ancestry. If we want to know what those characteristics are, we have to go out to the next outgroup, which would be old world monkeys, animals like, like rhesus macaques. Okay, this is all very um, straightforward, standard evolutionary biology. This is what evolutionary biologists do all the time 
in all sorts of biological systems. Some of the nicest examples uh, that have come along in recent years are in the field of genetics and comparative genomics, where people compare the amino acid sequences of proteins or the nucleotide sequences of, of genes, and they, they identify in which lineages particular um, uh, su substitutions occurred, and in that way you can reconstruct ancestral conditions and determine um, what the pattern of change was in, in lineage-specific fashions. This is a gene that's already had lots of discussion today, which is FOXP2, which is a, a gene that may have something to do with human language. It's an interesting gene because it's very conservative among mammals, that is, it's undergone uh, very few amino acid substitutions in the proteins or nucleotide substitutions in the gene. Uh, there are only three nucleotide differences in the coding sequence between humans and mice, but two of those uh, occurred after the chimp-human split. People have made a lot of this. It's been touted as the language gene, as you'll see. I, don't, I think that's a bit simplistic view, but it's out there. Anyway, so as I said, this kind of evolutionary reconstruction is, is the norm in all sorts of areas of biology. Uh, but there's one area of biology, curiously, where, where this approach has not taken very strong hold, and that's neurobiology. And, and when you think about it, in one sense, that's, that's really strange, because if you were to, to take the cerebral cortex, if you take the gray matter on the outside of this human occipital lobe, you look in, if you were to look into that little bit of gray matter, well, by itself it doesn't look like very much, but if you stain it appropriately, for example, some of the earliest stains were done using the Golgi technique by Romani Cajal and his student Lorente Deneau, what they found is that there's an incredible variety of cell types in the cortex and, and a fantastic diversity of different kinds of nerve endings, which suggests that the, the, the connectivity of the cortex is, is very complicated. <laughs> And um, if that's the case, then you would think that there's a lot here that evolution could work with. It could change cell size, it could change dendritic morphology, it could change the, the particular patterns with which individual types of cells connect with other types of cells, and so on. A lot of opportunity for very rich evolutionary analysis. But if you say, well, what do we know about the differences between humans and apes, or between humans and any other primates for that matter, at these levels of organization, um, the answer until very recently was, we don't know, because nobody ever looked. Uh, and so what we're left with as uh, a variable to talk about brain evolution is brain size, the one thing that we can measure without even knowing anything about neuroanatomy. And of course, it also has the advantage of being something that sort of fossilizes. So it's a variable that's relatively easy to measure and doesn't require any messy preparation or really any knowledge of neuroanatomy, for that matter. Now, how is it, how is it that, you know, you think of the, the complexity of the cerebral cortex, how is it that people could ever have thought that brain size alone was the thing to talk about in brain evolution. And I'm not disputing that size is important. What I'm uh, questioning is how it is that people thought that they could get rid of all of the other dimensions of brain organization and have anything significant at all to say about brain evolution. Well, actually, there is a line of theory on this very point. So Carl Ashley, 
who was a famous American psychologist. He was a professor of psychology at Harvard. He was also a, an early director of the Yerkes Primate Center. Lashley is the man who did studies in rats where they taught the mazes and then they ablated different parts of the cortex to see uh, how, what caused their memories to degrade. And what he argued, what he seemed to have discovered is that it didn't matter where the lesions were, it mattered how many or, or how large the, the total space of the lesion was. So the more tissue removed, the worse the memory. From this came the idea that most of the cortex, and cortex consists of, of various regions, some of which, the ones that are shaded in here are the regions that are devoted to the specific senses, like somatosensation, vision, audition, and also the motor areas. Those areas have clear, specific functions that are related to those senses, but there's a lot of other cortex, especially in primates, which is, goes under the general label of association cortex, and that's greatly enlarged in, in, in humans. And Lashley's argument was, to put it somewhat simplistically, is that it doesn't matter how this stuff is organized. In fact, it doesn't really have any real internal organization or any regional variability from place to place. It's homogeneous, it's equipotential. Now, his, his views were a little more nuanced than this. He had some ideas that maybe, well, the local connectivity changes and maybe there are some differences in, in um, neurochemistry, but these anti-localizationist views as they're called, uh, were very influential, um, especially among uh, academic scientists who didn't actually have to deal with brain-damaged humans who show you that, in fact, functions are highly localized in the brain. You, you can get away with this if you don't actually have to deal with patients. But it was a very influential idea. And he didn't really develop it as a quantitative theory, but Harry Jerison subsequently did. Throughout the 1960s, he wrote a series of papers culminating in his magnum opus in 1973, in which he, um, he said, look, okay, you've got these two parts of the brain, one related to, the, to the, the external world and the vegetative functions, and then this other part that you think with. Well, the parts that are related to the senses and to the body, they ought to scale with body size. So as, as bodies get bigger, brains get bigger too. And if you, so his idea was, well, you, 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 you subtract that out statistically, and you look at what's left, and what's left is, is the stuff you think with, and how much of that extra stuff you have left is how smart you are. Now, putting it, putting it somewhat baldly, but that's the essence of his argument. What he did in, in practice was he took the ratio of, of an animal's brain size and, and compared it to um, the brain size of an average mammal, a typical mammal of the same body weight. So you take out brain size, you're left with this ratio. It could be greater than one or less than one. Um, this he called an encephalization quotient, and it, or EQ. And if EQ sounds a lot like IQ, there's no accident there. He, his view was, his claim was, that encephalization, measured in this way, was an index of biological intelligence. And that's, that's it. That's, that, that's his story right there. Okay. Now, not everyone thought that this was a great way of thinking about brain evolution. And, and while Jerison was writing, uh, Ralph Holloway, out of anthropology, Ralph was a paleoanthropologist, was developing a very different set of ideas. He, he argued, well, you know, brains could be the same size, but they could do very different things. They could be organized somewhat differently. Comparing, you know, a human brain to an ape brain might be like comparing apples and oranges rather than comparing oranges of different size. And he proposed a number of different ways in which brains might vary in their internal organization, which he called reorganization. 
course, one kind of change is the brain could simply be expanded as an A with the different parts expanded proportionately. On the other hand, brains could remain the same size, but their internal proportions could be modified. Or third, C, um, the connections between different regions could be modified. So, they could, so the flow of information in the brain could, could, could differ or could change in evolution. Also considered the likelihood that the different hemispheres were specialized to do different things. And in a recent version of this schematic diagram, um, he considered the possibility that the biochemical characteristics of areas might, might change. I'm actually going to riff on, off this a little bit and, and generalize this to the local organization of the cortex, the particular package of cells and interconnections and neurochemistry that you find in a, in a particular small region of the brain. So this was Holloway's idea, reorganization. Now, this argument could go on um, because there were no data to, to, to deal with it. Uh, it's, 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 it's really easy to, to, to speculate in lieu of data. And the fact of the matter is, um, up until the 1970s, we had no solid information about the, the connectivity of, of the cerebral cortex. So m many of these different aspects of organization, th there really weren't data, and certainly not comparative data, that could be used to address them. So, so what happened? This is what happened. There was a neuroanatomical revolution. Um, this is Pat Goldman Rakesh, who was my uh, graduate advisor. She was one of the architects of the neuroanatomical revolution that took place in the 1970s. What uh, she did, uh, based on, uh, and, and a number of other people were doing similar kinds of work, is that she uh, introduced techniques for tracing the connections between one region of the brain and another. And the way you do this is you take an experimental animal, she used rhesus monkeys, you make a craniotomy, you do an injection of a tracer substance into the cortex. These tracer substances are transported along axons to their terminals. And so when you sacrifice the animal a week later and, and process the cortex to see where the tracer went, you can see in incredibly exquisite detail, and you can do this down to the electron microscope level if you like, exactly where those terminals go. And this was absolutely revolutionary because prior to this point, you know, we simply had no good techniques for studying connectivity in the brain, and especially the, the, the fine calibered connections that you see in the cerebral cortex. So this was a real revolution. Um, and uh, you know, it was my great honor to be able to work with Pat Goldman. I, I had the honor of working with another one of the uh, neuroanatomical revolutionaries, uh, John Koz, who's my postdoctoral advisor. John cuts a slightly different figure than Pat did, um, but was revolutionary nonetheless. Um, he started uh, his work really around 1970, and some of the most important work he did in collaboration with John Allman, who was just finishing, in the early 70s, just finishing his PhD in physical anthropology as a student of Clark Howells. Um, what they did is this. They, they recorded from the cortex using microelectrodes. This is a technique that Hubel and Wiesel had used in the 60s to map the organization of primary and secondary visual cortex. And, but what they did is they took their electrodes and they went way the hell out in the temporal lobe and started recording there. And what they found was that stuck out in the middle of the temporal lobe, there was a little visual area. It had a nice little map of the visual field just the way, just, just like the, the primary visual area, or the secondary visual area, which was also known at that time. Um, quite unexpected, I think. Um, 
So out there in this undifferentiated association cortex, there's this nice discreetly organized little patch of cortex that's visual cortex, probably all, only visual cortex. And it actually it differs a little bit from V1 in that it likes stimuli that move. So MT is thought to be uh, one of the principal components of the motion pathway. Kaus and Ullman did something else that was, that was really important. It seems so obvious now when, when, we, when we think about it. But they weren't content to just map this area with electrodes. They sectioned the brain and, and stained the cortex with various kinds of histological stains to see whether the area had any histologically distinctive characteristics. And it did. It's heavily myelinated. And then they went a step further, especially um, John Kaz and, and his uh, other colleagues. They started making tracer injections into areas of the cortex that they had identified electrophysiologically and followed the connections between them. Not only in doing this, not only did they build a map of the wiring between different areas of the cortex, but by following the connections forward in the brain, they were able to identify other visual areas, which they then were able to um, characterize using these anatomical techniques and also with their physiological techniques. At the same time, other people were working on the visual system in macaques, particularly the work of Semer Zeki in, in the UK is notable. Other people were working in other sensory systems. Um, at the same time, well, it's remarkable in retrospect just how much of this work was done by John Kaz and, and his associates. The upshot is that by the early 90s, most of the association cortex in monkeys had been filled in. It had been filled in by little areas, many of which, but not all of which, were devoted to specific individual senses. And the, the kind of track tracing work that was done uh, led to this uh, famous, famously detailed and, and uh, amazingly complex diagram from Feldman and Van Essen that's reproduced in almost every neuroscience text textbook. That gives you a, a le level of the resolution of detail that we have now that, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, no idea, no, no clue about this. Okay, so we have these areas, we have these new systems of connections. What happened in mammalian evolution? Well, as it happens, this is a question that John Allman an, um, an evolutionary anthropologist, and John Kaz, a comparative psychologist by training, were, were very interested in. And because they did a lot of comparative mapping, especially John Kaz, um, they were able to make some conclusions about this. And, and, and the, to make the story short, the argument is that in small brain mammals like insectivores, hedgehogs, possums, tree shrews, rodents as well, you've got a relatively small number of areas. And these include the primary sensory and, and, and motor areas. If you look at large brain mammals like carnivores or monkeys, they have lots more areas. They still have those primary and secondary sensory areas, but they've got a lot of additional areas. So what happens in evolution? You get bigger brains, and, and as a consequence or as a correlate, an increased number of cortical areas. So we can add one little, one little bit to Holloway's diagram. We can add another component. One way brains can get bigger is to add more areas. But what about the changes at finer levels of organization, particularly changes in, in, in microstructure in, in, the, in the local systems of cells and circuits? Um, something really, really strange happened in the 1970s. At the same time people were discovering all this diversity of er areas, the argument was that at a cellular level, at a local level, everything was the same. It was, you could get a little patch of cortex it would be the same no matter what area of, uh, of, of the brain you were in, and it would be the same no matter 
what species you were looking at. And here's the idea. If you, if you take that little patch of gray matter in the cortex and blow it up, you'll find it's composed of these little vertical arrays of cells about, about 30 microns wide. Fine. Lots of cortex has a sort of columnar appearance like this. But the claims that were made about the nature of these columns were really remarkable. So it was claimed um, that these columns had a very stereotyped cell composition, that they consisted of about 107 neurons, plus or minus a few. And this was the same everywhere you went in the cortex, from front to back, and indeed the same in every species you looked at. Not only that, but if you, if you were to unpack one of these columns and look at the local systems of interconnections, what you'd find is that they had the same circuitry. They, the, the inputs came into the same layers in layer four. The, the inputs were then distributed out, up and down the cortex in particular stereotyped ways. And then connections went out from different populations of pyramidal cells in the upper lower and lower layers to different targets in the cortex and the brainstem. And the argument was, the same basic pattern everywhere in the cortex and in every different species. Honest. People really argued this. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting um, because what this does, so, so at a high level you've got these new areas, but, but what happens evolutionarily at the local level is that you simply add new columns and you, you preserve the same architecture. And, and yes, you can, you can incorporate these columns into new areas, but the only thing that's really different about the areas is specifically what targets project to them and specifically what their output targets are. So in a way, this is an incredibly conservative model of, of brain evolution. Things happen at higher levels, but not at lower levels. If you want to study a, a rat or a monkey for a living, you don't have to be worried about human specializations because at, at, you know, if you're studying primary visual cortex in humans, you know primary visual cortex is primary visual cortex. Or as a young colleague of mine recently said when asked why if he was interested in human memory he was studying rats, he said, well, you know, after all, brains are brains. And that's pretty much the attitude in, in, in neuroscience. And so if you ask, well, what are the differences between humans and apes? The answer is, it doesn't matter. There aren't any that are very important except size. And well, how do we know that? Well, actually, nobody's really looked because nobody has thought it important to look because we all know that brains are brains. So neuroscience has basically cut out human beings, except for, for fields like functional imaging where we're looking at the large-scale distribution of function. When it comes to the nuts and bolts of the brain, the computational architecture of the brain, people don't figure into this. Why go to the trouble of trying to study a human when you can do really elegant experiments on rats? You know, do they, what do they have to do with people? Well, you know, it's, it's all the same stuff. It's, so the argument goes. Um, people say this. It's, it's amazing. But things have begun to change. The, the, the neuroanatomical revolution, which had passed people by, um, has begun to take some account of human beings. And, 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 and one of the important uh, developments in this is the development of comparative neuroimaging, which I don't need to talk about because Jim has talked about it extensively. Uh, just to make one point, one of the really important things about this is the, the, the ability, which is a very recent thing, to actually track the connections. Between, um, between areas in, in, in humans and to be able to compare those connections to other animals. 
That's really new. Most of what we thought we knew about the connectivity of the human brain was based on studies of monkeys. And it was simply assumed that monkeys would be like people. And, and the upshot is, I think, they are in some ways, and they're not in other ways. And the ways that they're not, of course, is, is, is very important. Um, now, remember that the, the, the model that I just painted for you of brain evolution emphasized the importance of adding new areas as, as brains enlarge. So, so one thing that people took seriously about human brains is the, the possibility that we might have new areas. And Francis Crick, for example, argued, well, the architecture of our brains would be pretty much like monkeys, but we'd have new areas for language. Well, it turns out that there's very little evidence for new, for new areas in humans. There might be some in the temporal lobe. But it's really hard to, uh, based on what we know from human brain maps, to see any real uh, differences in, in the numbers of areas. It, it, it looks to me as though, for example, in prefrontal cortex, some of the areas that exist in monkeys are, are there in humans, and, and they've simply enlarged. What's more, um, Jim's discussion essentially assumed that there were homologs of Broca's and Wernicke's areas in, in, in non-human primates. And, and that's an important point, because um, there is reasonable evidence, perhaps not drop-dead evidence, but reasonable evidence that homologs of these areas exist in non-human primates. The implications of that are quite important, because if, if these areas are, are processing language, and language has some really unusual properties in terms of its hierarchical organization, the cursiveness of production, these areas must be internally organized in ways that are somewhat different in humans than they are in, in other animals. And that implies differences in the local architecture of the brain. Now, getting back to this idea of, of basic uniformity of organization, there never was really very much strong empirical evidence for it. And, and as, as comparative neuroanatomists began to explore the, these questions in, in the 80s and 90s, um, they acquired a lot of evidence that showed that it wasn't true. Now, must, much of this evidence was simply ignored because it, it, it wasn't collected in rats. You, you had to do comparative experiments. And if you study rats, you probably read the rat literature and don't really care what the tree shrew literature or the cetacean literature says. But, if you read more broadly, what you find is lots of evidence of, of evolutionary change. And so this is the primary visual cortex of a, of a small whale, a pygmy sperm whale, and of, of homo sapiens. Uh, these are animals with brains of about the same size, although, of course, pygmy, pygmy sperm whales are, are much bigger animals, um, stained with two different preparations. And you don't need to be a neuroanatomist to see that these are very, very different kinds of tissues. So I'll simply leave it at that. In addition to finding these sort of broad differences across species, uh, people also began at about the same time to look at differences within the primate group and actually started to compare humans and apes. And uh, I want to mention two studies uh, that were published in, in 1999 that make this point. These are among the first studies to show human specializations at these levels of organization. Um, so for example, I have two things mixed here. This is actually not my study. This is actually the study by Esther Nemchinsky and her colleagues, including particularly um, Patrick Hoff and John Allman, again. And what they did is they were looking at the structure of the anterior cingulate cortex across a wide variety of species. Patrick is just very much into comparative studies. And what they noticed 
which actually wasn't surprising because this is an older observation. In, in humans, there were these odd cells in layer five, these so-called spindle cells here. These are cells that appear to be pyramidal cells that have lost their other basal dendrites and have developed and greatly enlarged and elongated phenotype. Well, when they looked at great apes, um, chimps, bonobos, orangs, gorillas, they found that these cells also existed in there, although there were many fewer and much smaller. And when they looked at gibbons and old world monkeys and new world monkeys and prosimians and rodents and so on and so forth, they didn't see any evidence of these, of these spindle morphology cells. And they're actually found in two places in the brain. They're found in the anterior cingulate cortex, shaded red above, and also in the frontal insular cortex of, of, of humans. Um, they're a, a hominoid specialization, although the peculiarities of their size and number are a human specialization. Interestingly, in some large cetaceans, they seem to have independently evolved cells with similar uh, phenotypic characteristics. What are these cells doing? Well, that's entirely a matter of speculation. John Ullman speculates that, that these are things that involved in, in large animals so that they could rapidly send signals from parts of the brain that deal with emotional evaluation to other parts of the brain. So big cells, big axons, rapid transmission. He sees this as a sort of substrate of social intuition. Again, this is interesting, but, but speculative. The, the other uh, study that came out at that time uh, was one from my lab, where we, 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 and this was, I think both of these discoveries were entirely accidental. Uh, I know ours was. Uh, I was setting up a new lab. Uh, we had some fixed primate tissue, including some human and ape tissue. And we wanted to see if we could get good immunocytochemical staining with this fixed preserved tissue. And so we used an antibody that we thought we knew what the staining pattern would look like in different species because it had been so widely studied. It's an antibody called SMY32, which stains a, a non-phosphorylated form of neurofilament protein. It's a neurofilament antibody, uh, uh, sometimes called NPF. NPNF or neurofilament protein. Now, if you, so we're staining the primary visual cortex precisely because we thought there would be nothing interesting going on here, that it would show us the same pattern across species. Well, these are the monkeys we looked at. These are spider monkeys and squirrel monkeys, which are new world monkeys, the cacs, which are old world monkeys. And indeed, they show some common features. This is exactly what we expected to see based on what had been published in, in the cacs previously. You see dark laning, staining in layers at layer six. You see another band of dark label in layer 4B. You see the same thing in, in spider monkeys. Interestingly, Cimeri has a specialization. They have this band of small pyramidal cells, the upper part of layer three, that the other monkeys don't have, at least not the other ones that we've looked at. So then we turn to the apes. And interestingly, they also had a lot of staining in layer six and in 4B, but then they had all this diffuse staining in the upper layers of cortex, which the monkeys didn't have. And these are the labeled dendrites of, of small pyramidal cells. So these are fine dendritic processes. Then we looked at humans. And they looked a lot like apes, except they had this odd pattern of, of tissue compartmentation in layer 4A. Well, we were very interested in this because it had never been reported. Well, other people had studied human um, visual cortex. We thought this was interesting. Uh, one of the reviewers uh, who we sent the, this paper to said that these results were impossible. 
because we all knew that monkey visual cortex and human visual cortex were exactly the same. And if you found anatomical evidence otherwise, there must be something wrong with your technique or the result is trivial and uninteresting. Well, of course, that made me sink my teeth into it. Um, so we started to look at more detail of these compartments. And we did many more cases which confirmed that they're, in fact, unique to humans. We have been able to characterize them in certain ways. This is tissue that's double stained through two different antibodies. This is the neurofilament antibody. This is a, the, the blue is an um, antibody to a, um, called CAT301, which is uh, an antibody that recognizes a ligand on specifically on cells that are in the motion-related part of the visual pathways. It's a fairly selective marker for the motion pathway. Um, these, actually, these two labels actually stain different sets of cells, but they're both cells that, that, that are, are parts of these, these dark compartments up there. We also know what goes in the holes there. Those aren't actually holes. They're simply collections of cells that stain for different things. In this case, what they stain for is the calcium binding protein calbindin, which is very interesting, very dense in humans, um, no calbindin positive cells in, in monkeys. So we have evidence then of, uh, of a reorganization of visual cortex um, in primate evolution and, and some particularly unusual specializations in humans. And what we showed by using a variety of different stains and a lot of, of different, and looking at a lot of different species is that you can reconstruct the evolutionary history of this part of the brain just as you'd reconstruct the evolutionary history of anything else, genes or proteins, whatever. Um, it's the same principle. Uh, I have a functional story about this. I think that the specializations in humans are probably related to motion vision. There is some, psych there is some uh, functional imaging evidence comparing humans and macaques, which suggests this is activation in macaques on the left, humans on the right in individuals that are watching um, a, an object rotating in space like this, you get a common set of areas activated in humans and macaques, but in humans you get those additional little areas up in the intraparietal sulcus that are activated as well. And there's additional evidence that suggests that the motion and contrast related pathways in, in humans are organized a little differently than they are in monkeys. Um, unfortunately, we don't have, yet have any functional imaging data on chimpanzees for this score. Uh, and, and Dick raised the question about um, differences between human and chimpanzee eyes, and the real answer is nobody's ever looked. Um, there are some substantial differences between macaque and human eyes, not simply in size, but in the distribution of different kinds of receptors. Humans are blue-blind in the fovea because we don't have um, short wavelength receptors right in the middle of the fovea. Macaques have plenty of them through there, as, as do most mammals. So there are, there are differences even at the level of the retina. Now, this project of, of trying to find hominoid and human specializations of, of the cortex continues. Um, I, I just want to mention briefly some very nice work that's being done by Chet Sherwood and his colleagues at, at GWU. Um, it's very much like this sort of histochemical, immunohistochemical work I just described. Um, these are studies, this particular study, it, he's looked at the distribution of dopaminergic terminals in the frontal cortex of humans, chimps, and macaques. And these are fibers that originate down in the brainstem, and they come up and they synapse on cells of different layers of the cortex. And the density and the particular laminar specificity that they show 
varies quite, quite um, dramatically across species. And also, when you look at the, the morphology of the terminals, the way they wrap around cells, there are some species-specific characteristics as well. So very few people have tried to look at these things, but everyone who has um, has found something interesting and different. And um, my guess is, my speculation is, that the human brain is simply riddled with evolutionary specializations. Not only that, I'm sure that there are hominoid specializations of the brain. There are also chimpanzee specializations of the brain. But we can, using comparative methods, identify human specializations. The small sample that we have uh, suggests that there are a lot of these. Um, the example from Chet, I mean, probably no one is surprised to find that, that, that there are evolutionary differences in the, in the prefrontal cortex area, nine, for example, because everyone thinks that's an area that was probably greatly expanded in human brain evolution and has a lot to do with human thought, and, and I, I agree with that completely. The interesting thing, though, to me is that it's not just in those areas that you find differences. It's not simply the case that a human brain is a monkey brain with some new areas added on at the top. Um, the ground floor was modified, too. So we see evolutionary specializations in the limbic cortex, which every, every textbook will tell you is evolutionarily conservative, and also in primary sensory areas, which are areas that I think that most of the sensory physiologists thought were pretty safe from any kind of evolutionary change. Well, change is not at all levels of organization and in many different parts of the brain. So, I want to turn now to um, what I think is a related, related subject, which is um, what the new genomics results have to do with, uh, with the evolution of the brain. Um, the story goes, the popular wisdom is, backed up by a lot of science until recently, is that if you looked at the genomes of humans and chimpanzees, they would be very, 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 very similar. So um, the, the story that came from the, the work of King and Wilson in 1975, a very influential paper, was that if you looked at the amino acid sequences of, of human and chimp proteins or the nucleotide sequences of genes, they would be about 98 or 99 percent similar. And that's true. Um, that fact, let's see, that fact, um, plus the idea that you could, which, which um, which Dick alluded to, which is that you could, you could build a big, big brain simply by leaving on the developmental programs that, that uh, were responsible for early development so that you end up with a big brain and a small face like a human rather than a big face and a small brain like a chimp, um, led to the impression that the genetic differences that made humans humans were just a very few genes, just a very few genetic changes. And that's certainly the, the popular view of this, as reflected in the subtitle of this Time magazine headline, and also in the, in the uh, title of uh, the well-known book by my good friend John Marks. The problem is, um, it turns out that the early estimates of the genetic similarity between humans and chimps turned out to be um, wrong. Um, Yes, it's true that the coding sequences are very similar, but there's a lot more to genomes than coding sequences. There's a lot of non-coding DNA. Uh, genomes aren't actually linear systems. Um, if you tried to put a number on the degree of difference between humans and chimps, people now prefer a number like 96%, but I think that really misses the point. 
the point is that there's been all sorts of change in sequence, in not just in coding sequences, but in regulatory sequences. There has been a lot of, of, of chromosomal change, a lot of duplication of genes, a lot of relocation of genes, and so forth. There are actually quite, quite a lot of changes that are going on. The genome isn't just this static target of mutations. It's a, it's a, it's a roiling mess. There are things moving around. There are things duplicating. There are things being lost. There are things being inactivated. There are parts of different genes being spliced together to, to form new genes. There's all sorts of stuff going on. So it's an interesting system. One of the things that we know about is going on a lot is gene duplication. And, and Evan Eichler, the geneticist, has made a career out of documenting this because it's a, it's a very common phenomenon in humans. And gene duplication is important because it generates new genetic material. So it generates copies of existing genes. Those, those copies can be modified now to serve new functions because they're, they're released from the old constraints of selection because there's another gene that's doing the same thing. They can get moved around in the genome. They can come under different regulatory influences. They can do all sorts of new things, and, and they seem to be doing that. And in fact, they make new genes. And geneticists are now beginning to take very seriously the idea that there are new genes in humans that chimps don't have, and vice versa, that chimps have genes that humans don't have. What the numbers of those genes are uh, is currently unclear. Um, but uh, people who have considered this think that it may very well not be trivial. We, we know of a couple of examples that have been published. Um, there's a microglial gene that Ajit Varki has published that doesn't exist in, in chimpanzees. So that's one conspicuous kind of change. It turns out that if you, if you statistically try to determine which genes were targets of positive selection, and there are well-established ways to do this, what you find is that there are lots of genes that were targets of human selection. Exactly how many depends on how you set the statistical criteria, but some fairly conservative estimates suggest on the order of about 1,000 genes, and that's about 5% of the protein-coding genome. So FOXB2 is just one gene among many that underwent selective change. An even larger number of genes underwent changes in expression levels in the brain. That is the sort of regulatory changes that we, we've talked about. If, if I were giving this talk a year ago, I would have suggested that the number would have been on the order of hundreds, because that's what we found and other groups found using microarrays to look at differences in gene expression between the adult cortex of humans and chimpanzees. Now we have new toys uh, to look at this issue. Uh, in particular, we have the new resequencing uh, technologies where we take RNA samples and actually count the number of, of different kinds of transcripts that are in them. And these results, um, you know, work that's being spearheaded in Dan Geshwin's lab at UCLA, suggests that there are thousands of genes that have undergone regulatory change that, that differ in the amount of protein, uh, amount of RNA they make in, in, um, in human brain cells. So this is a problem. Um, geneticists, in particular, I, I think, have been thinking about, well, what's the significance of, of genomic change in, in, in human evolution? They've been thinking about it along uh, using a mental model like gene discovery, which is the way human geneticists relate genes to diseases. So you find some family that has some inherited disorder. And then you try to identify the genes or gene or genes that are responsible for that disorder. So for example, FOXP2 was discovered because you had a family of people who had an inherited language disorder, 
they, they tracked down the gene by various means and, and, and realized that these people all had a mutated version of FOXP2. That kind of model makes sense if you know what the phenotypic differences are between species. And there aren't a whole lot of them. And there aren't a whole lot of genetic differences. But there are a whole lot of genetic differences between humans and chimpanzees. And we don't really have a good account of what the phenotypic differences are. We've only just begun to explore the differences in brain organization. Um, there's a lot of controversy about what the differences in, in cognitive psychology are. I happen to be of the belief that there are many and they're profound. But reasonable people have different views on this subject. So what I want to suggest is that let's drop the gene discovery model of, of genomics and start thinking in terms of phenotypic discovery, phenotype discovery. Let's take the gene differences that we can identify reliably and use them to drive our understanding of what's changed in the organism. And th this is how I think this would work. So there are a number of different ways you can approach the func functional consequences of genes. Um, you can take your whole array of gene expression differences in, in humans and chimps, and there are you know, thousands of them, as I said, and you can do correlation mappings. You can, you can see what the networks of influence are between different genes. So some genes, when they're upregulated, other genes tend to be upregulated as well. Some genes tend to be downregulated. These correlation methods have been worked out by Mike Oldham, who's a graduate student in, in Dan's lab. And when they've done this, they've also looked at what the differences are between humans and chimpanzees. And so what they found is they found some hubs or networks of genes that are uh, present in both humans and chimpanzees, but also some that are present in humans but not in, in chimpanzees. And the diagram on the right, which of course is unreadable, um, shows you the, the, the human networks that seem to be lacking in, in chimpanzees. So, so one way to get phenotypic information about the genes is, is to look at the patterning of genes and see whether they make any kind of functional sense. And in fact, they, they do. There are certain classes of genes that tend to, to fall out as being differentially expressed in humans and, and chimpanzees. And, and uh, among those genes, and I'm going to come back to this, are genes that seem to be involved in synaptic function and in energy metabolism. There are lots of other ones as well. But those are two that, as a neuroscientist, caught my idea, eye. Now, there are some other ways to approach um, the functional in, uh, effects of gene changes um, that are more experimental and more traditional. So you can make a transgenic mouse. So this is what Sante Pablo's group has done. Um, I, I like this because um, the title page gives you an idea of exactly what sort of organizational effort goes into, into generating work like this. Um, I used to, to sneer at, at these sorts of title pages until, until I got involved in work like this myself. And I, I now have a greater appreciation of it. Um, the senior author is Wolfgang Enard, who is, who is one of the people who's been following the FOXP2 story all along. They made a transgenic mouse that that expresses a humanized version of the FOXP2. That is, they inserted the gene that has the, the two amino acid differences that characterize humans. And what they found in their mouse was that they looked in the basal, dent, in the basal ganglia, which is one of the re regions that's affected in the, in the family that has the, the, the language problems. They found that the cells there had longer dendrites. And when they looked at the physiology of these cells, they found that their, their patterns of synaptic plasticity were modified. Okay, that's that's one, that's one line of evidence. I'm not saying that's, 
that you know, I don't expect that all of the phenotypic changes we see in humans are going to be reflected in a mouse model. These are mice. But it's a tool that you can use, and it can give you some ideas. Another way to do it, um, which Dan Geshwin's lab has pursued, is uh, a more mechanistic um, approach. So for example, FOXB2 is a transcription factor. It's a gene that binds DNA and, and turns other genes on and off. And so what you can do, using appropriate molecular techniques, is go into the chromosomes and see where this stuff binds and see what genes they're next to. And so the, the, the study on the left did ex exactly that. Um, and um, again, they found many of the, you, this is a classification of the different kinds of, of, of proteins that uh, were, were regulated by FOXB2. And again, you have a lot of things that are involved uh, in, in neural systems and in, in neural, uh, neural sig signaling. Um, yesterday, uh, a new uh, paper was published uh, uh, looking at um, a different way of looking at, at, how, at how human FOXP2 controls um, gene regulation. Um, Jenna Konopka is the, the senior author in, the, in this paper. What Jenna did is she uh, made human, humanized and chimpanized FOXP2 versions and expressed them in a neuroblastoma cell line and looked at what genes were being controlled by the human version of FOXP2 and which were being controlled by the chimp version of FOXP2. And of course, there was a lot of overlap. They had a lot of commonalities. But there were about 200 genes that were differentially regulated by one or the other. And again, among the genes that are differentially regulated are genes that are involved in neural development and synaptic organization and that sort of thing. Finally, you can actually go into tissue and see where these things are expressed. And this is something that my lab has been involved with. This is from a recent study looking at a gene that we, we knew was downregulated in humans based on the, on the microarray studies, which is beta-catenin. Beta-catenin is an interesting protein because in synapses, it acts to stabilize. As synapses form, they recruit molecules to them that help stabilize them in space. And beta-catenin is one of the molecules that plays a key role in that. Well, when we did uh, beta-catenin immunocytochemistry in the human brain, what we found is that, indeed, as expected, it's, it's, there's less of it than we see in chimps or macaques. But importantly, because beta-catenin isn't just involved in, in organizing synapses, it's doing lots of other things as well. So one of the reasons you do this is because you want to see that the, the protein is actually expressed in the synaptic space in the brain. And in fact, it is. It's, it, it tends to be in the neural pill around cell bodies rather than in cell bodies themselves. So this is su supportive of our hypothesis that there are some differences in synaptic mechanisms in the human brain. So again, um, I, I don't want to claim that this story is known or complete, and there are probably a wide variety of gene categories that are affected in human brain evolution, but two that seem to fall out far fairly reliably are genes that are involved in dendrite and axon growth and, and synapse formation and function. And, and we have evidence both from the gene expression studies as well as the, the positive selection, the, the assays of, of positively selected genes. By the way, many of the genes that are differentially expressed by FOXP2 also show signatures of having undergone positive selection. So it looks like we've hit on some system there that really was modified in human evolution. The other set of genes that, that tends to come up from a variety of different kinds of studies are genes that are involved in energy metabolism. 
And I, and I want to suggest that this is starting to put together a picture that maybe what we're seeing is our, th these are actually two aspects of the same thing. Um, genes involved in energy metabolism, I, I mean, is there any evidence that human brain metabolic rates are any different from those of other animals? Well, you know, that's, I hadn't ever really thought about that very much, but it turns out that there's some com comparative data. Unfortunately, it's mostly old and hard to evaluate now. There's some um, data on, on rates of oxygen metabolism in the brain and rates of glucose metabolism in the brain. And they generate some expectations about what humans ought to be like. Now, probably most of you know that there's a relationship between size and metabolism. As things get bigger, they tend to run slower per unit tissue. Um, so, you know, you pick up a mouse and its little heart goes pitter-patter at a rate that you couldn't duplicate yourself without having a heart attack. Um, now, that's not to say that, that mice use more energy per unit time than people do. It's per unit of tissue they use more energy than people do. And there's a fairly regular allometric relationship by this, and there's even a, a, a name that goes with this, Kleiber's Law, which Kleiber is the person who described the particular scaling coefficient that some people think characterizes these data. Um, it's an old result and well-established result in physiology. Big things run slower per unit volume of tissue. So let's look at oxygen metabolism in the brain. And so we've got small animals on the left, medium-sized animals in the middle, getting out to rhesus monkeys and baboons. And what you see is the expected relationship. Bigger brains, slower metabolism, burning less oxygen per unit tissue. So obviously, when we plot apes and humans, apes being bigger brain ought to be down here. Humans being 10 times the size of rhesus brains must be really low per unit tissue. But they're not. They're way too high. Human brains are burning too much oxygen, or at least more than the expected amount of oxygen. If we look at glucose metabolism, uh, the situation is even starker. We actually seem to be using glucose at a higher rate than some animals with much smaller brains. The glucose metabolism is, is a little trickier because glucose is contributing to more things than energy metabolism. But again, this, I think, supports the view of human brain as running too high, um, working at a rate that is um, higher than we see in non-human primates, even, even chimpanzees. So, so to close, I, I want to suggest that not only are our brains greatly enlarged, hypertrophy, but they've undergone a variety of kinds of reorganization. And some of these kinds of reorganization have, have affected our, our core physiology. Um, it's hard to know, in psychological terms, what it would mean to have synapses that are more dynamic, that turn over faster, or neurites that grow faster, or what it means to have have neurons that are burning more energy, does that mean that they're firing faster? Does that, is that simply a consequence of their growing faster? I mean, I don't know. Nobody's ever thought about this before. We've never had these kinds of data um, or considered them the, in these ways, and we wouldn't have without the genomic data. So I think the genomics are pointing us to a dimension of human brain evolutionary change that we never would have considered without them. Um, I think these, these changes probably have really profound psychological effects. Um, 
If our synapses are more dynamic, perhaps, perhaps we can think of that as, as a, a change in working memory. Maybe we're able to switch back and forth between different stable states of organization faster uh, than other animals uh, would need to do for, for whatever reason. I don't know. But um, I think what we've, the lesson of genomics and the lesson of neuroanatomy is that we have just begun to explore the human brain and its evolutionary specializations. The things we thought we knew were largely wrong, and we have to start over. And if we want to understand humans, we have to understand, we have to study humans, and we have to study chimpanzees. It's not enough just to study monkeys and rodents. Thank you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.